0: This episode is part four of our four part series leading up to the launch of my new book. The data sleuth process I lay out in the book is what I wish I had had when I started Workman Forensics in 2010. Whether you're new to the industry, wondering where to start, or maybe even wrestling with how to scale a service that seems unscalable, I believe the information in this book can help. The book is available now for pre-order. Pre-orders are what publishers use to determine how many books to order. So if you enjoy the content in today's episode, would you consider pre-ordering the book today? Stay tuned at the end of the show for more detail on the Data Sleuth book or see the show notes to reserve your copy today. Welcome to the Investigation Game podcast. I'm your host, Leah Wheatholter. CEO and founder of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Today I have with me one of the team members again. I have Rachel Organist. She's our senior data analyst. Originally trained as a geologist, Rachel obtained a Bachelor of Science from the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota and a Master of Science from Penn State University. When her work in the oil and gas industry didn't provide the career satisfaction she was looking for, she researched other fields and found forensic accounting to be the perfect place to apply her analytical skills. In her work with Workman Forensics, Rachel uses her expertise in scientific reasoning, as well as her aptitude for identifying, collecting, and synthesizing data to undertake financial investigations. As of 2021, Rachel is an official Certified Fraud Examiner. Well, welcome back, Rachel, to our last episode of this wonderful series we've been doing about our data sleuth process.
1: So happy to be here. It has been so much fun.
0: Yeah, it's been really fun getting some feedback from podcast listeners. Uh, One of them contacted me this week and said that he had purchased the book, but that he was actually going to listen to all of these episodes first before starting the book. So but that we had like a lot of things in common. So that was really fun to hear. So today we're going to try to squeeze three of our big analyses um, or kind of tools that we use as part of data analysis uh, into one episode. So are you ready?
1: Absolutely. All right.
0: First, I, so I'm not even going to like banter a lot at the beginning <laughs> here. Like, Let's just dive in. Okay. So first I want to talk about our source and use analysis summary. And so I'm just going to let you go, but how would you describe the data sleuth source and use analysis summary?
1: So this one, I mean, I'm excited to talk about all of these because the, they're kind of like the bread and butter core of the analysis that we do, but I feel like the source and use in particular has been around since before I started at Workman, you guys were doing this, but it's also just really cool. I think how we've kind of improved it, uh, refined it, made it work for us over the last few years. But really, I think sometimes people are kind of taken aback by how conceptually simple it is. All it is, is just a way to summarize where funds in an account came from and then how they were used, literally the source and the use of funds. I mean, that's what we put at the top of every work paper is the source and use of funds analysis. That's all we're doing. And we summarize by payee uh, or payor for expenditures. And basically, we're just, yeah, summarizing how much came from or was paid out to different sources. We do kind of sort things a little bit. Um you know, we'll pull out withdrawals, transfers, things that appear to be corporate entities like LLCs or things like that. So there is a little bit of subgrouping that can make it more useful for us or for the client. But really, it's a it's a pretty simple work paper.
0: Yeah, it's just a reorganization and summary of everything that happened in a bank account credit card or credit card account, whoever used it really, we haven't really used it on like any GL stuff. It's mainly like account heavy um, transactions. Yeah, I remember the day that this hit me because I used to um, scroll through bank statements because whenever I first started, I was entering all the lines of the bank statement. So I kind of knew what to look for. So I'd kind of scroll and then I'm like, oh, let's filter for transfers, let's filter for wires. But it was all these steps that I then had to remember to train my staff on. And so by creating the source and use summary, This let us look at all those things in a uniform fashion. I could, instead of saying, oh, did you also check for this on this big (laughs) schedule of bank statement transactions? I didn't have to ask. They could just run the summary. Now, uh, in the book, I believe, well, at least in the trainings that we do going uh, that coordinate with the book, I use um, Excel. As our how we run these and everything. Internally, we kind of have a whole process that's more automated, but the source and use summary can really just be made with subtotals or pivot tables.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, if you're just using Excel, I think pivot tables would be a pretty easy way to do it. The other thing you just kind of describing that made me think the other thing that I think is like really simple, but really powerful about it is that you don't just have to run it on one account. A lot of times we'll combine, you know, all the personal accounts related to a case, or if there's multiple accounts related to a business entity, maybe they have an operating account and a savings account or something like that. Um, It can really be an efficient way to do your analysis to combine all those into one schedule and then run a source and use on that.
0: So what kind of cases, what types of cases Is this analysis important?
1: We run it on almost every case, um, but a lot of our more common use cases would be um, as far as the use of funds side of things, embezzlements, partnership disputes, estate and trust issues. Essentially, anytime our client is concerned that someone with with access to that bank account or group of accounts was using the funds inappropriately, the source side, I think is a little less common. So that use side, I think we use on almost every case. The source side, to have it be really useful in a case we usually have to request and schedule deposit items, which we talked about those last episode or the one before when we talked about data processing. But whether we do or don't have those deposit items, the source side can be useful if you want to identify Maybe whether funds that should have been deposited were diverted If you, in a kind of a simple, really broad brush way. There are some more detailed ways we can look at it that we'll talk about later. But, you know, maybe you just don't see any deposits from a payee at all that you did expect to see. So it can be a precursor to kind of more complex types of comparative analysis, just kind of a quick first pass overview of what's in the account. Sometimes you see unexpected sources of funds and that can kind of tell us about connections between entities that we maybe didn't know existed and I'm thinking of we did a bank case, was it last year or the year before? I feel like the pandemic has completely skewed my sense of time, but we had a big bank case and we looked at a ton of accounts and there were some kind of side threads to that investigation that we sadly didn't get to fully follow up on. They just weren't really within the scope. But I know you know what case I'm talking yes. about. Yes. Um, but I feel like seeing some sources of funds into certain accounts kind of triggered some, oh, we didn't know that these two individuals or entities were connected in a divorce case that they that side, the source side could reveal sources of income that we didn't previously know about. Those are kind of just off the top of my head. But I mean, super broad application, we use this if even if this we don't send these to the client very often anymore. But we almost always run them just because it is like you said, Leah, just a way to kind of reorganize the data that we have for the case. And it's since we do have it so automated, it's really quick to run and it's just kind of a a good first pass look at things for us.
0: Yeah. And going back to the bank case you talked about, I have thought back to that case a lot and I don't think we would have been as successful without the source and use because we ran that. We had to identify a lot of parties that were connected and a lot of bank accounts that were connected. And there were a lot of entities that were connected. If you've ever done any research on entities, you know that they can, you know, an individual doesn't have to list, like I don't have to list that Leah Wheatholter owns. Uh, workman forensics, I can use an attorney or A CPA or somebody else to be the registered agent in that state. And so just running a Secretary of State search or database search would not have necessarily identified all of the entities we were looking for or the relationships with people. Because if you want to know if people are related or not, see if they're paying each other money. You know, like we can go and interview all day long, but if I can see how they're spending their money, I can make some of those relationships work. And I trust this data more than I trust like interviewing most people. So that's where I'd prefer to start. Not that one necessarily works with the other, but I just, uh, for this case, I just really don't know how we would have, we definitely wouldn't have found everything we found without the the sheer
1: volume for that case. Yeah. That case, the number of bank accounts that we had to look at, um, it was great to have something like the source and use that's relatively simple and fast to run. And I feel like it could get us a lot of information really quickly.
0: And I, it is really powerful in finding connected bank accounts, even through like the transfers or wires. Like I've found houses purchased in the Dominican before, just from a source and use and seeing a wire deposited to a bank account that, you know, then it's like, oh yeah, this isn't like his normal paycheck. So things like that. Do you have a good case example of using a source and use we've talked about like related to a bank or maybe embezzlement but what about in a divorce case
1: yeah so we actually just had a recent case where the source in use was really helpful and again kind of a different budget time issue instead of we didn't have necessarily a huge volume for this case like we did for the bank case but the client was on a smaller budget so we wanted to really quickly be able to answer some of his questions so we did a combined schedule of all their joint marital accounts that he was aware of, well, all of their joint accounts, which he obviously was aware of, and uh, ran a source in use on that. So we quickly were able to identify several other accounts that were previously unknown to our client, um, a couple of credit cards that he didn't know about in addition to the ones that he did, and then some large dollar wire transfers that then that was kind of a jumping off point for the client to request that additional documentation from the bank. That's another way that uh, these can be really useful. And then it also kind of in a going the other other direction, the source of news did reveal that direct payments to the spouse's family, which was something our client had been really concerned about, weren't actually as material as he had thought. It kind of was able to shift the focus for him and his attorney, those payments to her family, to the wire transfers and some other issues. So I think we really got a good bang for the buck on that case with the source and use.
0: Yeah. Did you send the source and use to the client
1: on that one? I think we still did not in that case, because we did go ahead and do uh, interesting data findings next, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. And that's kind of often our workflow for that. We use the source and use for us to just quickly see what we want to dig into a little more. And then when we do dig into specific transactions. We'll summarize those for the client on the IDF. So I think that's what we ended up sending him and going over with him.
0: So there are a few things with running like a combined source and use. We don't combine personal with business and we don't combine like we make sure the ownership of the accounts are the same on all the accounts that we're gonna combine. So we don't wanna take like son account and mix it with like a husband wife account. Like to keep those clean, that's just better. Just keep the ownership of the account separate if you're gonna combine them. And then we don't combine bank accounts with credit card accounts in the same uh, source and use because we actually start with the beginning balance of the account, Plus all the deposits, minus the expenditures, so then we end up with um, all of the or the ending balance. So if we include, like on the bank statement, it's going to show that there's a credit card payment to Chase for ten thousand dollars or maybe hundred thousand dollars over the period we're looking at. So if we include all of the Chase transactions as well, we're actually going to end up with like a double. We're going to double count that. Um, because our credit card information is really like, if you're an accountant, it's kind of like your subsidiary ledger. It's your detailed ledger of what was paid. Like that's how you know what that payment was for. So we keep those separate typically.
1: Yeah. And that source and use, Usually I'd say we run them on the bank account first, and then you can see if there are credit card payments out of that account. And that might tell you if you want to go further and uh, dig into the credit card, because how a credit card was paid can be relevant to whether or not you even want to analyze that those credit card statements. You know, sometimes it doesn't really matter for a case, and then we'd rather save the client money and not look at them at all. Right, correct. Yep,
0: exactly. Okay, so we run a source in use first, and then connected to that, we run the interesting data findings. So from a high level, what is this data sleuth, interesting data findings analysis or or kind of some report really that we run?
1: Yeah. So like you mentioned at the start of the episode, these are analyses, but they're also kind of just tools. And I think of the IDF especially as, as well as the uh risk-based analysis that we're going to talk about in a little bit, but it's more of a communication tool or a way of kind of organizing several different analyses and then presenting them usually to the client for feedback, but sometimes, you know, just getting all our findings kind of in order for the finding summary or for the report. But basically for the interesting data findings, we run a bunch of tests on a data set. Usually it's going to be bank or credit card statements, And then we summarize those different items, the transactions that are most interesting, that we have interesting data findings for. So the IDF, that's how we abbreviate it. I'd love a good three-letter acronym. But um, ultimately, then we end up with kind of a summary sheet of all the findings and then detail tabs. So that allows the client to drill down. They can just start with a summary sheet. It's less overwhelming. It's kind of grouped into sections by uh, the type of test or flag or analysis that we ran. Um, But then they can always drill down to the detail tabs to see, well, what were these, you know, things that Workman has said look like loan payments or, you know, uh, they can get a little more detail or even provide feedback in more detail because maybe some payments in a category were were fine and they knew about them, but then other ones they do think are suspicious or are not right. So that's kind of it in a nutshell.
0: So what are... I know everybody's going to want to know. This would be the question we get we were asked the most if uh if we didn't address it right now. So what are some of the common tests that we run?
1: Oh gosh. So we have a whole list. Even dollar transactions So, you know, that could be things just like $143, you know, truly just the meaning of even dollar amounts. But also in the vast majority of cases, I'd say it's useful to narrow that down even further to just transactions that are multiples of $100 or $500 or $1,000. It kind of depends on the case or the data set, but I usually start with 100 and go from there. Expected versus actual frequency of expenditures, maybe things that you would expect to be paid or... Specific payees that you would expect to be paid once a month, but um, maybe there were multiple payments per month. Recurring transactions is kind of a subset or a variation on that. Um... And we'll look specifically at the same payee with the same dollar amount being paid multiple times. And um, that can be an easy way to pull out loan payments, utility payments, that kind of thing. And we can go into more detail on all of these. I just wanted to give a quick overview of what some of the tests are. Frequency of deposits. So, you know, there I'm talking about expenditures, but also deposits. If you were expecting to see rental income or social security income or things like that, Um, or maybe just identify different income sources that you didn't know about. Recurring payments are a way to do that outliers or just large individual payments, you can kind of get a little more complex and do some joins with other data sets. Like if you wanted to join your checks by check number to like the GL or to a check register and look for pays that didn't match, that's something that you can then Pull back the the mismatches into an IDF, ATM withdrawals, anything at a specific location, which is more commonly going to be found on a credit card statement or the ATM withdrawals on a bank statement. Days of the week, credit card transactions, those statements will have transaction dates in addition to, you know, the cleared or the posted date. So you can look for um, if it's a P card that should only have been used during the week maybe look for payments made on the weekends, and then any variation or combination of the above. Like really commonly we'll combine, you know, an even dollar amount with a large payment and only look at large even dollar payments. Um, Or maybe you just want to look at ATM withdrawals at specific locations. So it's so wide. Basically anything that kind of doesn't where it's making it its own work paper by itself wouldn't be particularly useful. But when you combine it with all of these other flags in terms of looking for transactions that might be part of the loss or might not have benefited the client or whatever it is that you're kind of looking for in this particular case, bringing those all together on the IDF is where it's really powerful.
0: Yeah, and whenever we first started working on this, it was really to allow just to narrow down, like giving a client a source in use was helpful. But then we started noticing saying like, well, the client wants to know the client would say things like, well, some of these payments might be okay, but not all of them. Or, you know, and, and we might look through the data set and go, oh, this is kind of weird. And so then we pull out something. And so we just needed like a place. To like you said, to communicate with clients and to say, okay, we've gone through your data. And from a data perspective, these things seem odd or they're high risk. Like they're even dollar payments. I just described those as they're high risk because people who steal money typically do it in like even dollar amounts. So um, you might as well just pull those out, but we're kind of helping the clients. Help us find the needles in the haystack. And so we're doing that using these different data tests. And then specifically, because you said that this, that the tests that you can run are just so wide and can, you know, oh my gosh, I could do all these things with it. We really try That's why we started most of this series with case planning. Because we have to connect that back to what are the client's concerns. We may still, usually we find more than the client did, but it still helps us kind of narrow down the scope of what we can look at. And then secondly, how do we, I I mean, so that's how we kind of, you know, rein in the scope of all these tests we're going to run to then communicate to the client. But also, how do we kind of know when we've run enough tests
1: yeah I was thinking about this earlier when you mentioned um kind of when we first started doing the IDF and how our the types of analysis that we were doing kind of evolved um you know you might be running these different tests and eventually the same transactions are going to pop up over and over again and that's when you kind of feel like okay I think I have found everything that's of interest within this data set and you can start to feel confident that you're not missing anything at least that would stand out from a data perspective and I just wanted to also say kind of I think a where the IDF takes it to the next level over the source and use or kind of another reason we evolved to add this on top of the source and use is that the source and use doesn't really look at timing of payments or of deposits at all, unless you and sometimes will split out a source and use into two different time periods. If that's relevant to the case, you know, before or after a date of divorce or a date of death or that kind of thing. But the IDF can then bring in analyses that like we mentioned, you know, days of the week or frequency of payments, or I just feel like a lot of times when we were sending the source and use directly to the client, or even looking at it ourselves, we'd think, well, the significance of payments to this payee is different depending on whether it happened, you know, before X, Y, Z or after. And so being able to dig into that a little bit more in the IDF and present it along with timing information is really valuable.
0: Yeah. So then when we have this information in the IDF, we've got all these details and we group it by findings. We're not limited to just what our test results showed us. And that's why we run that source and use too, because we can use the source and use to help us kind of cater the tests as well and then organize that by data finding or Whatever. Like, I feel like we try whenever we're knowing that it's going to the client, you know, explaining an even dollar payment is pretty simple. But maybe like if you're doing a Z score type thing, outliers, I think sometimes we just call it outliers or large individual transaction or something like that. Yeah. Just to like keep our audience in mind that they're not data analysts, but kind of group them so that they know what we're talking about. Right.
1: And we do include on our IDF summary, a column that's like data findings is usually what we'll put as the header for that. But that way on each kind of group of payments, you know, usually they're grouped by payee. We can tell the client, this is why we're showing you these Um, and maybe include some questions that we have for the client. Like, was this ordinary? This is why we're asking you about this or um, just a little bit more context for them of why it's included. And that can help them too when we're giving them when they are giving us feedback.
0: And I think that's kind of unique, by the way, to us, that we would incorporate the client into this process. Talk a little bit about it in the book. And story I use is that we had been, man, at this point, I have talked about the book so much that I can't remember which audiences I told what. So if this is a repeat, I'm really sorry to our (laughs) listeners. But we I I don't think we've talked about this yet. But we um, had done some analysis and this guy was getting paid through like contract labor. So there were checks made directly to him. But then there were also checks in payroll. And so we did our analysis, and then wrote this really nice report and um i got into the meeting to talk about the report and the clients were livid because they thought the loss amount would be much higher and I just remember sitting there like, oh my gosh, how did we miss this? You know? And that was the last time we did not include a client in the process with us because of that situation. Like that was just the most horrible meeting I have ever had to participate in because they were so mad. Um, And what had happened was he was getting paid through payroll and contract labor, but they didn't tell us that at the beginning of the case, which I don't know now looking back, I'm like, did we really expected our clients to like know that detail or to think to tell us that detail? I mean, that's a little uh, presumptuous or something on our part. Like, come on, let's be realistic. Um, and so when we started incorporating the clients and that allows us, especially in the IDF step, and then later, whenever we put it all together in our finding summary, it lets us catch those things and involve them before we've like issued a report.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I feel like the converse is really commonly true where something looks super weird to me, you know, not knowing the business or the exactly what's going on with the trust or whatever it is. Um, but like we always tell our clients, you know, your business better than anyone for clients who are small business owners. And so, you know, we're here to facilitate, obviously, we bring our expertise in fraud risk and um, data analysis and all those kinds of things to help them. But ultimately, they have great information on what they actually expect to be, you know, leaving their account or who should have been being paid or, you know, whether something is really unusual or not. So that's definitely a key step. And I think that's the IDF is kind of that intermediary between us doing all the data analysis, and then the client providing their knowledge of their business really brings the two together, I think, really efficiently. Yes,
0: I totally agree. Can you think of a good example of the IDF before we take a break?
1: Yeah, so another a lot of these are pretty recent. So they're really fresh in my mind. But we had a partnership case where I think an IDF was really effective. And this was a case, um, I guess we'd call it pre-litigation, but the audience for our analysis, the the client didn't have all the information yet. Their partners were being kind of uh, not very forthcoming with the bank statements and things that they had requested but they were eventually able to get us some bank statements for the business and so they weren't really our client wasn't really looking for anything super specific um kind of just general misappropriation of funds they felt like you know they had been cut out of the business to some extent and the other partners were not handling things appropriately and so the client and their attorney were just trying to gather more information before deciding kind of what their next steps were but so for that idf we actually ended up pulling together a variety of things that I don't know that we would have kind of seen them all in one place and connected them without doing it this way. But we were able to use recurring payments to identify some what looked like loan payments that the client maybe didn't know about. And that looks like they may have benefited the partner's other businesses that the client was not part owner of. Um, And then kind of some other expenditures that were related to real estate transactions that also appeared related to the partner's other businesses or assets that the partners owned without our client that we had identified through a public records database search. So it really kind of tied together these different types of payments that all pointed to, you know, hey, these guys are using the funds from your joint business to fund some of their other business ventures. But I feel like that IDF was really helpful in bringing all those different, those are, you know, different types of flags or payments that stood out for different reasons. But to have them all in one work paper for the client was, I think, really uh, helpful. Yeah,
0: that is a great example. Let's take a break real quick, and we'll come back to talk about our risk indicator analysis. Hi everyone, it's Leah. My new book, Data Sleuth, Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations, launches April 19th. And to celebrate, we're giving away 10 signed copies during each of our April 5th and April 19th episodes. With 20 chances to win, you do not wanna miss out. To be sure you're in the drawing, subscribe to the podcast and turn on alerts to be the first to know when the episodes drop. Welcome back to my conversation with Rachel, we're going to talk about our risk indicator analysis. And in the book, I talk about the source and use summary, the IDF, and the risk indicator analysis like separately, because because of how they're used, but it's not like we're performing different magic tricks with all of these, we're just like revamping the old ones. So what is a common use of the risk indicator analysis? Or how do you decide that that would be an appropriate analysis? For a case.
1: A lot of times if you maybe start with an IDF or you can even think this through in advance and kind of see that the risk indicator analysis might be a better fit. But I'd say the risk indicator analysis is similar to the IDF in that it's a communication tool ultimately that pulls together the results of a variety of different tests or flags. But the big difference with the risk indicator analysis is that it's great for data sets where one transaction or record is likely to flag on multiple tests. Often, I'd say the tests that we do related to the risk indicator analysis aren't as in depth or complex as some of those IDF tests that we mentioned. So in general, um, the risk indicator analysis, it can be used on bank statements, but we more commonly end up using it on data sets like payroll or purchasing orders or uh, kind of other, I don't know, internal company data that um, I just think payroll is a really good common one, though. And the tests will just be simpler. They'll be, you know, just we're looking for large payments or um, in the case of payroll, sometimes it could be like the ratio of direct deposit to check payments. It could be weird if someone is getting like a lot of checks or um, not only large payments, but our macro that looks for large payments can also look for payments that are large for that employee. You know, maybe they're not large in compared to the overall data set, but relative to other payments to that person. I'm trying to think, do you, I you just did that really good risk indicator analysis on a case that was on payroll data. What were some of your other tests?
0: Well, I think um on that one I feel like it was a little specific to the client and like the way that they did their business, but yeah, like even Dollar, we had a bunch of people who had even dollar payments, or like we were looking, we knew that some individuals who didn't work for the company had been paid a certain dollar amount. So then I could give like kind of give a point to anyone who showed up in even dollar, give them a point. Anyone who showed up in um, this dollar amount, I think it was $900. So then maybe give them a point and just anything, uh, maybe didn't work for the company anymore, give them a point, because it doesn't necessarily have to be on the dollar amounts, the risk indicator analysis. Like a common thing that people talk about is finding ghost employees. Like, I feel like that's a popular topic among fraud examiners is like, let's look at the employee records and find duplicate addresses or duplicate social security numbers or duplicate, they'll do it on vendor records too, but you know, who are employees with, no address, or so then, you know, checks aren't being mailed to them, uh, those types of things. And then a, a word, or a point for each of those, like, these are the, these are the data results for that flag and awarding a point to those. So anyway, I'll let you kind of take it from there. But those some of the ways that I've used it.
1: Yeah. Well I was just gonna say I think the biggest difference between the risk indicator analysis and the IDF is that the risk indicator analysis is kind of built with the assumption that a lot of uh, transactions are gonna flag on multiple tests. Whereas with the IDF, if something flags on multiple tests, you kind of have to decide which section you're gonna put it in, like where does it really stand out the most? And then you know you can maybe add a comment for the the client, like this payment was also really big, um, you know, if maybe it's in the wire transfers section, but you're more looking for kind of a variety of different payments that flag on these different tests. Whereas with the risk indicator analysis, you were mentioning, you know, assigning points to different things, it'll be more often that, you know, we assign each test a point and then kind of can look at transactions that have five points, those might be the highest risk. And we'll usually put those at the top of the work paper, you know, for the client, if you can only look at one thing here are the transactions that we think are highest risk. And another thing that I don't know if we've done this yet, but I think you can make an argument for um, even weighting your tests. You know, we typically say one point per test, but if something based on the facts of the case, we think is a very strong indicator of a potentially fraudulent transaction, you could weight that test higher, you know, give it two points or something like that. But it's overall, I don't know if this is a great way to put it, because this isn't exactly, I'm not using these terms the same way they're used in financial statement analysis or things like that. But the risk indicator analysis is kind of a horizontal communications of findings versus the IDF being vertical. You know, IDF will list these different flags in these different sections kind of consecutively. Whereas with the risk indicator analysis, you're sort of looking at all the flags at once.
0: That's true. Yeah. Another thought I just had was that I think sometimes the risk indicator analysis is helpful when the decision maker, so management or the client or owner is like further removed the day-to-day because Mm -hmm. when when we've had those cases where there's an embezzlement and the owner is very familiar with their business they're not real far removed they can say oh yeah this isn't this payment doesn't belong to us we've never purchased any we should have never purchased anything from this or oh yeah so and so they haven't worked for us in this many years you know like they're familiar enough with those types of things and those those are the conversations we have and then it starts building that loss on risk indicator i feel like it's a tool to help maybe the decision makers or management that are further removed, try to identify, okay, I may I, we're not gonna have time to go through all of these and I don't know enough of these details to say which should go into our loss buckets or if they should even go into a bucket. And so by saying, okay, well... If we had to prioritize your time, like you said, to look at anything, we would look at these that triggered multiple flags because we think these are the highest risk. And this is how we would track this down: we'd find these supporting documents or information, or ask these questions, and and go from there. Because sometimes they're like, we know this happened, but we don't know which people this happened with, and there are hundreds of people. I mean, the case that I use this m- most recently on. I think over five, they did like 5 million in payroll a year. And this payroll was like, not very many people were over a thousand dollars of payroll so we're talking about a ton of transactions and trying to narrow that down to say okay this is these categories are most likely of highest risk that we need to consider
1: yeah and I think that is maybe payroll data sets kind of tend to be like that especially with larger businesses and maybe that's why we tend one of the reasons we tend to use this more for payroll because I'm even thinking um, one of the first cases I worked on here was ended up being a really big embezzlement case but when the client came to us they knew two of the people people who were involved and they knew that at least some of the theft had happened via payroll but they weren't really completely sure about who else was involved and so just looking at all of their payroll data this was kind of before we had this risk indicator analysis really co- before it had really cohered into kind of a standard process for us but even then i basically did the same thing and just ran a bunch of different tests you know people who received multiple payments per pay period i kind of put on one excel tab and then people who were paid on paydays that not very many other people were paid, you know, kind of like non-standard pay dates. That's another one. But yeah, I think payroll data sets just lend themselves to this kind of analysis because often they are just so big that it's a good, good narrowing down.
0: Yeah. And, and the day that I was like, we need to name this was when you used it on it, You like, you kind of formalized it a little more on a purchasing case because yeah. if you think of purchasing and this was a manufacturing company, I mean it was massive. What do you decide? Like, how do you decide what's important? And each flag, I feel like by itself, we didn't have enough information with any of our other sources that would tell us whether it was high risk or not. We we didn't know. And I think you might have avoided some of those too.
1: That was definitely a case where the client was pretty distant and didn't have a lot of they weren't just weren't able to give us a lot of feedback on what was, you know, potentially bad and what wasn't. So I like you said I It's almost like this does a little bit more of the work for the client in assessing what's high risk and what isn't. Whereas the IDF, we kind of rely on them. You know, we can point out things that might be high risk, but it just relies on them having a little bit more information about the situation. Right. And I think kind of a fun aside is that when I first started putting these together, um, it was partially inspired by an idea training that I did, but then also I... And I think we probably said this, um, you know, in an earlier episode or in the intro, but I used to be a petroleum exploration geologist, and this is big in oil and gas exploration is what's called common risk segment mapping. And it's basically this concept, except instead of a spreadsheet, you end up with a map. But you take your, you know, reservoir charge and maturity and uh, porosity, permeability, all these kind of different factors that make a good oil play, have your color-coded maps and then you layer them together and see like, okay, this is where all the good stuff lines up. And that's basically what we're doing here, but just with transactions. Yeah. And
0: I just want to add to kind of the end of this risk indicator analysis that even though it's done a little bit more of the work for the client, it's still not proof. So we still have to take that extra step. We still have to do confirmations or uh, find invoices or connect it to something else, even if it is an interview at that point. But- We've got to connect it to something else. Or like on payroll, we can have all of these like non-monetary flags. But if the individual was never paid, then there's like no loss to the company. You just need to clean up your employee records type of thing. Um, so just one other like thing that I should add that whatever your source and use, your, it looks weird on your source and use or whatever, you know, is, looks strange on an IDF or whatever are your highest risk items on a risk indicator analysis. That doesn't mean that there's fraud. That's not your answer.
1: I think that's a great mindset for everything we've talked about, even in the series is that nothing is a smoking gun, but you're building your case, you know, you're kind of adding these layers of support to which transactions are going to ultimately be part of your loss.
0: Well, thank you so much, Rachel. This was so helpful. And um, I'm definitely going to do, just here at the end, talk about the book, just a little, because for each of these things that we've briefly touched on, there are case stories, there are examples, there's even like tables and charts to kind of show you what this looks like in the book. And then to go along with all of these things that we're just really so passionate about and wanting to teach others about, because I believe, I think we all believe here that investigations impact real people's lives. And we want to make sure that, the work product we're putting out is accurate of the facts that it tells the story of what actually happened. And so we've created, um, we have a four hour training that's based on the book that has a workbook and all kinds of examples. And we actually practice doing uh, the analyses that we've talked about today. So if you're interested in any of that, make sure to contact us at Workman through our website, workmanforensics.com. Yeah, this has been so much fun, Rachel. We'll have to do it again. Absolutely. Thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to The Investigation Game. For more information on any of the topics brought up on this show, visit WorkmanForensics.com. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also connect with us on any social media platform by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions or topic ideas, please email us at podcast at WorkmanForensics.com. Thank you.